Hi, this is Ashley, the host of Taboo and Murder, and Slanted Rants. This episode is weird because I don't know if it should be a slanted rant, or if it's an installment of Breaking the Taboo Patriarchy Edition. I'll post the episode on both pods. Well, because I can. But I'd love to know if you feel this is a slanted rant topic, or more of a taboo and murder style subject that deserves a more researched, deep dive. Please let me know on Twitter at SMTaboo. The patriarchy. Nearly every system and institution is a patriarchal one. So how do we burn the patriarchy to the ground? Well, women and allied men have been trying for decades. And yet, here we are amidst Me Too, under the rule of a racist, xenophobic, sexual predator as president, and we see the patriarchy walking down the streets holding tiki torches. Before I can really do a series of proper rants on patriarchy and its negative effects on women, men, and society in general, I wanted to have a baseline quasi-factual breakdown of just how many dudes are running all the shit. So buckle up. You're about to take a ride on the white male entitlement train. All aboard. Just run to the drinking car. So this article from the New York Times is a few years old, but it's stuck with me since I first read it. I'm going to pull from the article, and I will also link to it on Twitter, and probably in the show notes, too. That seems to be y'all's preference. I think that's the first time I've ever said y'all's. Fewer large companies are run by women than by men named John, as a sure indicator that the glass ceiling remains firmly in place in corporate America. Among chief executives of S&P 1500 firms, for each woman, there are four men named John, Robert, William, or James. We're calling this ratio the glass ceiling index, and an index value above one means that Jim's, Bob's, Jack's, and Bill's combined outnumber the total number of women, including every woman's name from Abby to Zara. Thus, we score chief executive officers of large firms as having an index score of four. Our glass ceiling index is inspired by a recent Ernst & Young report, which computed analogous numbers for board directors. That report yielded an index score of 1.034 directors, meaning that for every one woman, there were 1.03 Jameses, Roberts, Johns, and Williams combined, serving on the boards of S&P 1500 companies. Even as this ratio falls short of the score among chief executives, it remains astonishingly high. It also underestimates the impermeability of the glass ceiling. After all, most companies understand that an all-male board looks bad, and so most of them appoint at least one woman, although only a minority bother to appoint more than one. Far fewer of these larger firms, currently one in 25, are run by a woman serving as CEO. We can also use our index to compare the permeability of the glass ceiling in corporate life to that of the political domain. The United States, which has never had a female president, has had six named James, five named John, and four named William. Thus, even if Hillary Clinton were to be elected, the glass ceiling index would have been 15. Turning to Congress... There is a partisan divide in the glass ceiling index. On the Republican side of the Senate, there are as many men named John as there are women. 
Add in the Senator Roberts, Senator James's, and Senator Williams, and they outnumber their female colleagues by a ratio of 2.17 to 1. The score in the House is slightly less unbalanced, but there are still 1.36 Jims, Bobs, Jacks, Bills for every woman. Just think about that. On the Republican side of the Senate, there are as many men named John as there are women. That's shocking and appalling. By contrast, on the Democratic side, women outnumber the men with these particular names by quite a margin, and by my count, the glass ceiling index suggests a ratio of 0.3. Uh, 0.3 to 1 in both the House and the Senate. Likewise, within the executive branch, per, uh, President Obama has appointed Secretary John Kerry and Robert McDonald, uh, but they're still outnumbered by six women yielding an index score of 0 0.033. Treasury Secretary Jack Lew is a Jacob, not a John, so not relevant in this index. Um, I tried to find information regarding Trump and... As you can imagine, that dumpster fire was way too fucking tricky to sift through because there are so many cabinet members um, that have had such levels of turnover that it would be hard to quantify. I imagine um, somebody will do a study, hopefully after his fourth year, unless, you know, he has a brain aneurysm or something before then. Anyhow, so even the index for um, Democratic politicians and cabinet members remains more than twice as high as the benchmark for the population as a whole. In 1990, the last year for which the Census Bureau published data on first names, James's made up 1.6% of the population, John's were an additional one6 Roberts and Williams accounted for another 1.5 and 1.2% respectively. The other side of our ratio is the share of women who were 51.2% of the population. Putting these numbers together, the ratio of Jims, Bobs, Jacks, Bills to women is 0.12 to 1. Other institutions are clearly in transition. For instance, Chief Chief Justice John Roberts is the only John on the Supreme Court, and he is outnumbered by three women, which yields a score of 0.33. But this is a more balanced court than it has historically been, and before Justice Elena Kagan took over from Justice John Paul Stevens, there were as many Justice Johns as women. Imagine that, as many Johns as women. Emboldened by the this new approach to uh, uh, quantify the glass ceiling, I felt compelled to also track progress within my own field, which is academic economics. I took a quick count of full professors in the top six economics departments, typically, typically thought to include Chicago, Harvard, MIT, Princeton, Stanford, and Yale, and discovered 1.12 professors, um, James, Robert, John, or William, for each female economics professor suggesting that we are still a substantial distance from gender parity. Indeed, this is a setting where the index probably understates the problem, as economics faculty members are an internationally diverse group, and the index is unmoved by Jamie's, Roberto's, Juan's, or Willem's. 
The glass ceiling index is a fun but quite imperfect way of measuring the permeability of the glass ceiling, especially because in a few decades, the millennial Jacobs, Tylers, and Zacharies will outnumber baby boomer Bills and Bobs. But it does point to an important truth that in many important decision-making areas of America, women remain vastly outnumbered. I look forward to updates on this type of study. I find it so shocking that we can live in a world where Johns outnumber all women in positions of true authority and decision making and yet still have people think that gender equality has been achieved or that we women should just shut the fuck up already. Today is January 4th, 2019. So yesterday, more women were sworn into Congress in 2019 than ever before. And most are Democrats. I could break into a rendition of Hallelujah right fucking now. I'll spare you. And who owns the rights to that song anyway? God? Anyway, Democratic House uh, candidate Sharice David celebrates her victory in Kansas. Davids became the first lesbian Native American congresswoman by beating Republican incumbent Kevin Yoder. Hell yes, beating a male incumbent. Brava, Sharice. A record number of women were elected to the House and sworn in yesterday. It was powerful. And the trolls are already out ripping the AOCs of the new House for existing as non-white men and daring to wear lipstick. This new class includes the first Muslim and Native American women ever elected to Congress, the first female African-American representative from New England, and the first Latina representatives from Texas. Yay, Minnesota. I think uh, we have a transformative effect because a lot of us are used to breaking through barriers. New Jersey rep-elect Mickey Shearer told NBC's Morning Joe on Wednesday. I think as women, that's what we've been doing our entire career. And so to go somewhere and to have that challenge before us is not daunting. It's sort of par for the course. Preach. The results follow a record-setting year with more than 250 female candidates running nationwide for state legislative races, governorships, and national office. Stacey Abrams, you were fucking robbed. The history will books will show that you were fucking robbed. Many were first-time candidates who said they were inspired to run in reaction to both the loss of Hillary Clinton the first major party female candidate for president, and to President Trump's election. Trump is increasingly unpopular with women. Apparently, women don't like the idea of a president grabbing them by the pussy. Oh, wait, that didn't do shit. 53% of white women. What the fuck? You gender traitors. I feel no shame or guilt telling you to fuck off. Female candidates also set a record in the Senate where 24 women serve, up from 23. As always, Senate, you move at a snail's pace, unless you're looking to confirm a sexual predator, of course. Male Republican candidates defeated Democrats Senator Claire McCaskill in Missouri and Senator Heidi Heidkamp in North Dakota. Kavanaugh had a role in Claire McCaskill losing the race when she voted with her conscience. So even though she lost, I think she should strut out of her office with her head held high. Live with conviction is my personal model. So I appreciate that she threw herself on her sword because it was the right thing for women and society. 
But in Tennessee, Republican Marsha Blackburn was elected to replace male colleague Senator Bob Corker. Democrats also elected a new female senator in Arizona and Nevada. It was in Nevada that Jackie Rosen beat incumbent GOP Senator Dirty Dean Heller. Even with the new higher numbers, overall female representation in Congress is still far below the 52% of the population women make up, but it's steadily increased over the past five decades. There is a wide disparity between the parties, said Debbie Walsh, director of the Center of American Women in Politics at Rutgers University. Women are on track to make up nearly 40% of House Democrats in 2019, but less than 7% of House Republicans, she said. It's been a frustration, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, Republican from Kentucky, said. We need to do a better job of recruiting women candidates and getting them elected. Every time Mitch McConnell tells a lie, a turkey's neck grows by an inch. Mitch McConnell's spirit animal is a turkey. Try to convince me otherwise. Walsh said Democrats have female leaders like House Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi, now Majority Leader, Democrat out of San Francisco, who are dedicated to recruiting women, and the party has created groups like Emily's List that focus on recruiting female candidates to run in winnable districts and support them financially through their campaigns. Emily's List was a fantastic resource in the 2018 elections, and I think it's going to do wonders for 2020. Republicans have historically not had female leaders and don't have a comparable focus on recruiting women to win. Without those things, it will be hard for the party to catch up, Walsh said. I don't think they care. I think they totally are fine with it being the party of uh, crusty white men. Like, I think they're actually trying to ensure that is the case if you, you know, do any amount of looking at policy. With, that's my opinion. With a record number of female winners come several other firsts and milestones, including 41 women of color as of most recent results, um, and the youngest women ever elected to the House, the 29-year-old phenom Alexa Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez of New York. I have fondly started just calling her AOC because, you know, we're tight and shit. The incoming class will be younger and more diverse than ever before. It is incredible. New Mexico Rep. Ben Ray Luan, head of House Democrats campaign, said the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee made strategic, strategic investments to boost the numbers, including $39 million into candidates of color, $63 million into female candidates, $25 million into veterans, and $9 million into LGBT, it should say Q, candidates, he said. Pelosi said um, that she expects female representatives to take the lead on more than just traditional so-called women's issues like child care or sexual harassment. Quoting her, I want women to take ownership of what would be traditionally not as highly visible roles for them, and that's one of the ways that they will change the Congress, she said. When the White House or the administration, whatever administration it is, has to report to leadership in the Congress at any level about the safety of our country, they'll be talking to the full diversity of our country, our women, people of color, LGBTQ. And I think that's a very positive thing because people in the public will see people who share their values, their experience, their concerns making decisions about safety and security of our country. 
Women also made inroads in several governor's races, flipping them from Republican control. In Kansas, Democrat Laura Kelly defeated Republican Chris Kobach. In Michigan, Democrat Gretchen Whitmer defeated Republican Bill Shute. Again, Stacey Abrams, you were fucking robbed, and I loved your not-concession concession speech. It was brilliant. Now contrast that with the year of the woman. Here's another article from the New York Times that I rely on heavily. Again, see the show notes on Twitter. Key Moments Since 1992 by Alex Strauss. This was written on April of 27 April 2nd of 2017. A record 47 women were elected to the House of Representatives, 24 for the first time in what became known as the year of the woman. Women also won an additional four seats in the Senate with Patty Murray, Barbara Boxer, Diane Feinstein, and Carol Mosley Braun joining the incumbents, Nancy Kasbaum and Barbara Mikulski. The election was influenced by Anita Hill's 1991 testimony before the, uh, before and uh, grilling by all male Senate Judiciary Committee members during Clarence Thomas's confirmation hearing for the Supreme Court. Any fucking parallels? Yeah, we'll get to them. Here is a look at some significant ups and downs for women during the 25 years since then. Janet Reno was the first woman to become Attorney General in the United States, a position she held through the Clinton administration. She was involved with the standoff in Waco, Texas, the Unabomber, Ted Kaczynski, the 1993 World Trade Center bombing, the 1995 Oklahoma City bombing, and the return to Cuba of Elian Gonzalez. August 1995. After winning a two-year legal battle against the Citadel, 19-year-old Shannon Faulkner of South Carolina was the first female cadet to join the all-male military academy in its 150-year history. After spending most of her time in the infirmary citing physical and mental stress and needing protection by federal marshals, she left school. Today, about 180 undergraduate women are enrolled at the Citadel. Madeleine Albright became the first woman to serve as Secretary of State. A champion of NATO, she worked to strengthen U uh, United States relations with China and Vietnam, played an important role regarding American policy in Bosnia and Herzegovina, focused on peace missions with the Middle East and tried to stop the spread of nuclear weapons from former Soviet countries. In 2000, she became the first Secretary of State to visit North Korea. I've said nuclear so many times. Nuclear, like George uh, Bush. I don't even know that I know how to say it correctly anymore. Nu nuclear. Condoleezza Rice was appointed National Security Advisor by President George W. Bush, making her the first black woman and the second woman to hold the position. In 2005, she became Secretary of State. During her term, she led a ceasefire agreement between Russia and Georgia. And she was on 30 Rock and was hilarious and didn't take herself too seriously, which is the nicest compliment I will give to Condoleezza Rice. November 2005, Angela Merkel became the first female chancellor of Germany and the leader of the Christian Democratic Union. During her time in office, she has cut taxes for German businesses and raised the minimum wage. She has widely criticized. She was widely criticized in 2015 for her decision to admit more than one million migrants, many of them Muslim, into the country. She later backed off her position. 
January 2007, Representative Nancy Pelosi, Democrat of California, became the first woman to be Speaker of the House. She was instrumental in passing President Barack Obama's health care reform bill, the Student Aid and Fiscal Responsibility Act, and the Lilly Ledbetter Fair Pay Act. December 2007, Benazar Bhutto was assassinated after addressing thousands of supporters at a rally in Pakistan while uh, campaigning to become prime minister for the third time. In 1988, Ms. Bhutto was the first woman elected to that position in a majority Muslim country and was elected again in 1993. Her term ended early because of corruption charges and she was granted amnesty and had returned to the country to run again. August 2008. Sarah Palin was picked by John McCain to run as his vice president, a first since Geraldine Ferraro in 1984. Although it was considered a triumph by, by many women who admired her soccer mom qualities, she faced criticism for her lack of political and foreign policy knowledge. She was one of the first Republicans to endorse Donald J. Trump for president in January 2016. And we all know when she didn't uh, win her vice presidency. She quit her actual job in Alaska. August of 2009, um, Sonia Sotomayor became the third woman and first Hispanic to become a Supreme Court justice. Justice Sotomayor, who was raised in a housing project in the Bronx, is considered one of the most liberal justices. In her dissents, she has often taken on the criminal justice system. Malala Yousaf of Pakistan became the youngest person to win the Nobel Peace Prize at age 17. Starting in 2008, when she was 11, she started speaking out publicly against the Taliban for threatening to revoke education for women in her country. In October 2012, a gunman boarded her bus and shot her in the head, leaving her paralyzed on the left side of her face. I can't remember the name of her book. Get it. Read it. July 2016, Hillary Clinton became the first woman in the United States to receive the presidential nomination from a major political party, and then the infighting of the Democratic Party fucked everything up. Thanks, Bernie and Obama. I'm just kidding. I just added all that. I love Obama, but Obama, but Bernie and Hillary, you should not have been tearing at each other. You needed to fucking unify. Now Donald Trump is in the fucking White House. Okay. July 2016, Hillary Clinton became the first woman in the United States to receive the presidential nomination for a major political party. Even before her presidential campaign, she was one of the most powerful politicians in Washington. As a senator from New York, a candidate in the 2008 presidential election, and as Secretary of State from 2009 to 2013, most famously, she is known for being the wife of Bill Clinton and staying with him when he had public affairs, most notably with Monica Lewinsky, and that will be... Hillary Clinton and Monica Lewinsky's legacy and Bill Clinton will be put on a fucking shelf just like George H.W. Bush and John McCain. August 2016, Kellyanne Conway was appointed Mr. Trump's campaign manager and became the first woman to manage a successful presidential campaign. She has had a long career as Republican Party campaign manager, strategist, and pollster. She is cur currently counselor to the president. November 2016, women in the United States maintained their presence politically as 104 were again elected to Congress, this time 21 in the Senate, 
one more than the year before. Two Republican women were chosen to lead House committees, Virginia Fox of the Education and the Workforce Committee and Susan Brooks of the Ethics Committee. In the Senate, Lisa Murkowski leads the Energy and Natural Resources Committee. January 2017, hundreds of thousands of marchers, mostly women, flooded the streets of Washington, and millions did the same around the world against the inauguration of Mr. Trump and for women's rights. Brett, I like beer. Do you like beer? Kavanaugh. The intersection of society, our political system, and patriarchy, all on full display with decades-long consequences. This piece in The Guardian is worth checking out in its entirety, and I'll post it in the show notes. The reaction to the Kavanaugh hearing proves that America hates women. There was a moment on Thursday while watching Dr. Christine Blasey Ford's brave and moving testimony that I thought this was it. There was no way Brett Kavanaugh would be confirmed. Even Fox News called Ford's testimony extremely credible. If Kavanaugh was confirmed when even Fox had to concede Ford was credible, then what message would that send about America's attitude towards women? What message would that send to high school kids about the consequences of their actions? We're in a screwed up world, Trump accusers respond to Kavanaugh's hearing, blah, blah, blah. So then when it was Kavanaugh's turn to speak, I was even more certain he couldn't possibly be given a lifelong seat on the Supreme Court. (laughs) Oh, my beer. Judges are supposed to be measured and objective. He came across as an entitled hothead, unable to control his emotions, blaming everyone except himself for his current situation. If Kavanaugh was confirmed after that performance, the credibility of the Supreme Court, the credibility of America, would surely be undermined. There was no way it could happen, right? Well, it looks like I completely underestimated the full patriarchy of America. If you're a rich white guy with powerful friends, it seems you can get away with anything. Kavanaugh hasn't been confirmed yet, as of this writing, But the Wall Street Journal's editorial board has called for him to be confirmed and Republicans are rallying around him, as we know he was confirmed. It's looking increasingly likely he'll be given a lifelong appointment to impose his will on America, no matter how women feel about it. But Republicans shouldn't expect women to accept this without a fight. We will march. We will strike. We will run for office. We have had enough. Patriarchy is on borrowed time. We're going to burn it to the fucking ground, guys. Sorry to keep on about Kavanaugh, but the entire episode really has been a case study in rape culture. Let's review, shall we? Here are five defenses that Kavanaugh, a supposed genius in law, actually thought were credible. Say you were a virgin. In an interview with Fox News that aired on Monday, Kavanaugh stated unprompted he was a virgin for years after high school. If you think, as Kavanaugh appears to, that being a virgin means you can't be guilty of sexual assault, then you have no right to be a judge in the first place, let alone on the Supreme Court. Use your 10-year-old daughter as a political pawn. In his testimony on Thursday, Kavanaugh said he meant no ill will to his accuser, and in fact, his 10-year-old daughter wanted to pray for Ford. He choked up after delivering this anecdote. I'd like to think in shame, but I'm not sure he is capable of feeling anything other than self-pity and entitlement. Dig out a calendar from 1982. Look, I wasn't even born. Okay, it doesn't say 
that. But it also doesn't say, attempted to rape someone tonight. Clear sign of innocence there. Reiterate how much you like beer. During the Thursday hearing, Kavanaugh mentioned he liked beer around 30 times. He even asked a senator if they liked drinking beer too. Amy Klobuchar, you are a class act. I can't even. Thanks for representing Minnesota. Can you imagine a woman telling a Senate Judiciary Committee how much she enjoyed drinking? She'd immediately be characterized as an irresponsible slut who deserved anything that happened to her. When men get drunk, it's a whole different story. Convince more than 85 women you know to get on stage and support. If you've been nice to one woman, it stands to reason that you can't have sexually assaulted another, right? That's Supreme Court justice thinking right there. Now, for some good news from other Supreme Courts around the world. On October 3rd, this is of 2018, the UK Supreme Court will have a majority of female judges decide a case for the first time in its history. India's Supreme Court has ruled adultery is no longer a crime. The court ruled that the colonial era law, which criminalized a woman having an extramarital sexual relationship without her husband's consent, was archaic and discriminated against women. It is time to say husband is not the master. Yeah, no shit. India's Supreme Court seems to be on a roll. It has also ruled that women can no longer be banned from Sabarimla. I'm sure I've said that so fucking wrong. I'm white. I'm sorry. Um, a temple, which is one of the holiest for Hindus. Before this ruling, women of a menstruating age, which was defined as 10 through 50, were barred from entering the temple. See my um, vagina episode with a very strong focus on menstruation if you would like more information on that. Bill Cosby was sentenced to three to ten years for drugging and sexually assaulting Andrea Constead at her home 14 years ago. It took decades for justice to be served, but as attorney Gloria Allred, who represents several women who say they were sexually assaulted by Cosby, said, we're glad that Judgment Day has finally come. Kavanaugh, I hope you're paying attention. This is me again speaking. So Kavanaugh, I hope that you are paying attention. It only took 50 women, but that's the standard, right? It takes dozens of accusers before the Weinstein and Cosby's of the world see any form of punishment. It's more common for the Bill O'Reilly's of the world to throw some money at the abused and quietly leave their jobs with millions of dollars in hand to live the rest of their predator predatory days on an island. Women are the face of feminism, and understandably so. After all, we're the originators, advocates, and defendants of the equal rights movement. When we focus solely on how feminism benefits women, however, we leave out a hugely important part of the conversation. Namely, ways the patriarchy affects men. Since the birth of the, of the modern feminist movement in the early 20th century, there has been considerable discussion of whether men can be feminists, and the answer often depends on your definition of feminism. Noted feminist and philosopher Simone de Behavior, for instance, argued in The Second Sex that cisgender men cannot be feminists due to inherent differences between genders. Even today, some argue that men can only be capable of being allies rather than feminists, either out of an inability to truly empathize or a distrust for their intentions. 
As Kat Stoffel explained in The Cut last year, there's something suspicious about anyone eager to identify with the oppressed. However, many contemporary feminism, um, however, contemporary feminism as a whole seems to be moving toward the conscience or the consensus. Gosh, however, contemporary feminism as a whole seems to be moving toward the consensus that yes, men can be feminists and they should because the patriarchy affects their lives as well as women's, if not to the same of extent. Of course, the majority of the ways the patriarchy affects men are beneficial. From the lack of laws policing their bodies to their setting as the default gender. On the other hand, there are plenty of ways that the patriarchy actually hurts men, many of which are hiding in plain sight. To find them, all you have to do is look. For the random dude or two trapped in the car, here are a few ways that the patriarchy fucks you over too. Toxic masculinity. As impossible and damaging as societal standards are for women, the standards for men are just as poisonous. From birth, men are discouraged from showing emotion, which is seen as a feminine attribute. Boys don't cry, right? Without a culturally approved outlet for their feelings, this stifling of emotion has led generations of men to turn to unhealthy coping mechanisms such as alcohol abuse, which men are more likely to experience than women. Furthermore, research has shown that fear of being seen as weak is so deeply ingrained that they drastically overcompensate when they feel threatened. Huge trucks. Male overcompensation is typically played for laughs, but in reality, it can have terrible consequences. As the authors of the study point out, men who don't see themselves as masculine are more likely to harass and act aggressively toward women and gay men. Yeah, overcompensating. Sexual assault. Although statistics show that men make up anywhere from 10 to 38% of sexual assault victims, Sexual assault is often seen as something that happens to women by men. Even when people do admit that male rape occurs, it's often played for laughs, prison rape jokes, congratulating him on getting laid, etc. The minimization and outright dismissal of male sexual assault doesn't exactly encourage men to come forward after an incident, and it can seriously impede recovery the military is probably the best example for this. Also, everything loops back to that toxic masculinity. Sexual aggression. While women are slut-shamed at every opportunity, men are encouraged to bang everyone in sight, often whether that person is consenting or not. In fact, if men don't express voracious sexual appetites at all times, they're belittled for not being manly enough. The stereotype of male sexual aggressors is so entrenched that for decades, scientific research worked on the assumption that men are more sexual beings than women, and it's only recently that this narrative has come into question. Domestic violence. Similarly to sexual assault, domestic violence is assumed to be a female concern. While women do make up the majority of domestic violence victims, Domestic abuse can and does happen to men as well. However, the culture of toxic masculinity is so strong that some men may not even realize they're being abused. Because they aren't used to violence being discussed in terms of female on male. Again, very common, more so in the military than the general population. Fatherhood. 
Women are seen as the natural caretakers in a household. And as a result, men are discouraged from spending too much time with their children. Even today, stay-at-home dads are seen as weak for letting their wives be the breadwinners. In fact, research has shown that men whose wives take home the primary income are more likely to be dissatisfied with their lives, all thanks to a culture that sees childcare as a feminine activity. Side note, I go out with my kids and maybe I'll get like a couple of like side glances if they're not being their perfect little angel snowflake asses. Um, But they are good kids, to be honest. My husband, on the other hand, he'll take them out. They'll go to Costco and like three or four people will stop him and like give him a fucking... um, you know, do like a monologue on how great of a dad he is and how supportive and how lucky I must be and all this bullshit. And it's like, he's fucking picking up wipes for our baby's ass in the same way that his mom could do that. But his mom's making money right now. And his dad is taking care of him. His dad makes money too. His mom makes money. Amazing that his dad can make money and still find time to take his baby ass to Costco. It's just shocking. Anyway, mental health. There's no denying that the patriarchy is set up to benefit men. However, gender norms are just as rigid for men as they are for women, and the consequences can be deadly. Some have argued that the high rate of completed suicide for men could be traced to the cult of masculinity, which causes men to be less likely to seek help for emotional problems. As Much as men may benefit from patriarchal societies on the surface, it's clear that the disadvantages far outweigh the advantages, in this case anyway, for mental health. Fortunately, there's a movement dedicated to dismantling the patriarchy. Feminism! Fancy that. We still have a long way to go, but if we work together, perhaps we'll find ourselves in a society that doesn't discourage men from showing emotion or shame women for doing so. There will never be an honest conversation about Nancy Pelosi as a political leader. Sexism doesn't just harm women in politics. It also poisons political analysis. This is an article by Christina Kachuri. I will post it in show notes again. And my I have my comments uh, strewn about in here so you'll be able to easily differentiate what I'm saying from Christina. So her article was written November 29th, 2018. So before uh, yesterday, of course, um, Nancy Pelosi being actually um, elected as the majority speaker again. Nancy Pelosi on Wednesday earning 203 yes votes and 32 no's from the fellow Democrats uh, to get the gig she has to turn 15 of those no votes into yeses in January when the floor vote takes place. It did yesterday. She's won. It's been frustrating to watch members of both parties do battle over who Pelosi is, what she's done, and whether she deserves another term as speaker because there seems to be a little room for nuance. Republicans have long made her out to be a cartoonish villain, a morally bankrupt banshee with an insatiable thirst for power. They've spent millions, if not billions, attacking her with ad campaigns in congressional districts she has no connection to, even as she held relatively little power as House Minority Leader. 
They've used her name as shorthand for sharp-elbowed ambition and her image, usually a photo with teeth barred and eyes bulging, as a dog whistle for conservatives who gag at the sight of a woman asserting her dominance in the public sphere. It's been so effective that even Democrats in previously Trump districts have bought what the GOP is selling. Abigail Spanberger is the perfect example. In debate with her opponent, a two-time incumbent, Abigail Spanberger is my name, she said declaratively as the Democratic challenger in Virginia's 7th District. Bratt mentioned Pelosi, a California Democrat, exactly 21 times in his 90-minute debate with Abigail Spanberger in front of a full audience at a local community college in Culpeper. A vote for Spanberger will be a vote for the Nancy Pelosi liberal agenda, he said, emphasizing the four-word phrase to try to hammer home a message that GOP outside groups have pelted the district with uh, TV and digital advertisements over the last several months. Bratt echoes GOP's Nancy Pelosi attack line in his Virginia debate, like I said, 21 different times. But Spamberger has said at least three times since July that she would under no circumstances vote for Pelosi to remain the House Democrats leader if she defeats Bratt in November. She told USA Today that time and time again she has been forced to counter Bratt's claim to the contrary. Bratt also knocked his opponent Monday for the millions of dollars in outside money being spent by liberal PACs to help Spanberger, even though outside groups have spent 33% more over the cycle on his behalf. Hmm. Cognitive dissonance? Anyone? They are trying to buy this election, the congressman said. The Pelosi-aligned House Majority PAC has spent $432,000 so far in support of Spanberger, despite her declaration that she would not back Pelosi to lead the Democratic caucus. Well, Abigail Spanberger won, and yesterday she stayed true to her promise to not vote for Pelosi. Does Abigail Spanberger and the dozen or so other Big D Democrats believe that a new change is needed as Speaker? Are they trying to appeal to the never Pelosi group of always Trump voters? I personally think it's terrible that fuckface brat used Nancy Pelosi nearly two dozen times in a debate as a disparaging way to attack his opponent. I understand why on that stage, Abigail Spanberger was fucking pissed and wanted her identity as her own, not to be tied to anyone, man or woman. Sexism isn't reserved for men. And I'm not saying Abigail Spanberger is sexist. She very well could believe that someone not eligible for AARP rewards should be the speaker. She shouldn't have to attack another woman in an effort to distance herself. The patriarchy puts them in the same silo because of their vaginas. The same doesn't happen for men. Sexism is alive and well and demonstrated in some of the most hostile and crude fashions. And right out in the light of day. I remind myself, all of this will be memorialized. These people are deciding what side of history they want to be on. And that brings me a little comfort. Until I remember that in 100 years, no one will remember any of us. And maybe we'll all be dead? So many ways to kill ourselves off in just a century. So yeah, keeping this positive. 
To counter that narrative, some Democratic supporters have made Pelosi out to be a feminist savior, a groundbreaking role model who can translate the momentum of this year's surge of female candidates and activism into a new era of progressive legislative accomplishments. In a recent New York Times piece by Kate Zierke that explores how Pelosi navigates her distorted public image, one Pelosi fan in Philadelphia notes that aging men in politics are perceived as experienced, while aging women are seen as expired. If I think about who we need as a leader, it's a woman who's raised five children, she said. In the same piece, another woman addresses an audience at an organization that trains female Democratic candidates, calling Pelosi our style icon and political fairy godmother. This sexist rhetoric, the conversations about the rhetoric, can make it impossible to have a fair, honest discussion about her political leadership. It's not just political allies who are hailing Pelosi as a feminist superhero. Journalists looking for vivid, accessible ways to illustrate her unflagging work ethic have latched onto gendered cliches. Both Zirnke and HuffPost's Jonathan Cohn have riffed on the famous line about Ginger Rogers, suggesting that Pelosi must do everything her male counterparts do backwards and in high heels. Elsewhere in her piece, Zirnke describes one of Pelosi's facial expressions as a look that is most withering when it comes from a mother. I think this was supposed to be a compliment, a celebration of female reproductive capacity as a source of strength rather than vulnerability. But for the life of me, I cannot imagine any facial expression that mothers and childless women perform differently. Nor can I imagine any journalist remarking on a glare that is particularly intense because it is coming from a father. As a writer on the women and gender beat, it's my job to take notice when narratives like these emerge, as they do just about every time a woman vies for political power. I'm starting to think, though, that viewing female leaders through a gendered lens can be at once tiresome and self-defeating. When I write about male politicians, I scrutinize their policy proposals, messaging, personal histories, and alliances. When I write about female ones, I do all that plus untangle all the gendered biases that attach themselves to their public personas. But it's not just that the sexist rhetoric that's billowed around Pelosi sends her entry into national leadership is an extra line item to ponder and write about. It's that the sexist rhetoric and conversations about the rhetoric can make it impossible to have a fair, honest discussion about her political leadership. There are plenty of reasons to admire Pelosi and support her nomination for speaker that have nothing to do with gender. She was instrumental in passing the Affordable Care Act. She has an unparalleled knack for whipping votes and knowing her own caucus. She's a tireless and reliably bankable fundraiser, and she is one of the more progressive Democrats in Congress, more liberal than the vast majority of those who've publicly opposed her. There are also many good reasons to want someone different at the helm. She's not a great public speaker. I shudder at the memory of her rousing election night invocation. Let's hear it for pre-existing medical conditions. She seems uncomfortable with, if not downright peeved by, the ouster of 
uh, long-serving Democrats by younger, more progressive politicians, AOC. She has refused to make the protection of abortion rights a foundational pillar in the party's congressional platform. And her maddening um, focus on bipartisanship and common ground is a poor match for both the urgent threats and increasingly racist and undemocratic Republican Party um, that the undemocratic Republican Party poses to American society and the anti-Trump fur that produced the blue wave that will likely put her back in the speaker's chair. It did. These responsible Anti-Pelosi arguments bear no resemblance to the reasons put forward by Democrats in Congress who want her gone. Their opposition to the longtime leader stems from the fact that she's unpopular with moderates between the coasts due in large part to the GOP's relentless assault on her character. When legislators like Representative Seth Moulton and Representative Tim Ryan say they want a more moderate face for the party, they're not only responding to Pelosi's left-wing voting record, which is very much in line with the opinions of Democratic voters nationwide, they're also capitulating on the sexist caricature Republicans have marshaled against her. There's a good argument to be made that any Democrat with Pelosi's visibility and long history of leadership would get branded a villain. Democrats rag on Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell and outgoing Speaker Republican um, Paul Ryan Plenty. Yeah, me too, because they're fucking horrible. And Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer's mug, usually wearing a stern look very withery and fathery, has appeared on a few pro-GOP mailers. But there's something obsessive, almost feral, about the way Republicans sink their teeth into Democratic women, especially women of color, regardless of how much power they actually wield. You can see it in Republicans' fixation on Representative-elect Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who has never held public office in the proliferation of Representative Maxine Waters' image, in the sort of right-wing memes that populated male bomber Caesar Syok's Twitter feed. See our episode on American terrorism for more on him. And in the continued smearing of Hillary Clinton. I'll say it again. Hillary Clinton wears the weight of 30 years of projected sexism on her shoulders. This isn't her fault, but it'll certainly keep her from being president. Not my rules just calling it like I see it. By backing away from the women the GOP has villainized, the Moltons and Ryans of the Democratic Party ensured that their fellow moderate Democrats will always harbor more reservations about female leaders than male ones. And because there are so few women at the top, any prominent women's failure or unpopularity is seen as a referendum on all women in leadership making too many people, including several progressive men who, after Clinton's 2016 loss, told me that the Democrats should go back to nominating white guys, wary of ever putting a woman at the top again. Quote, you can't let the opposite party choose the leader of your party, Pelosi said in a speech last month. Democrats shouldn't let them set the terms of the debate about her either. I'm not suggesting anyone stop discussing Pelosi's gender or its effect on her public perception and treatment. For one thing, her success in an environment that has been hostile to women is a testament to her skills as a politician and leader. 
But this round of discussions about Pelosi and the backlash to her and the backlash to the backlash to her is a clear illustration of the second order effects of gender bias. Sexism doesn't just harm women in politics. It also poisons political analysis. Advocates for gender equity sometimes encourage people to imagine the advances humanity might make or might have made earlier if half the world's intellect were valued and utilized as much as the others. I wonder what the Democratic Party might accomplish if people on the left didn't have to spend so much time rebutting gendered attacks on their female elected officials and could instead talk about whether they're good at their jobs. Which segues nicely into future episode topics of domestic violence, sexual assault, and rape. One thing I just real quick, I want to say, 95% of the art hanging in museums across the world is done by white men. So that's 5% for women and all people of color. That's the fucking patriarchy. Okay, my last rant. This is getting to be a long one. End the backlog. I'm sure you've heard of this. If not, goodbye now. Otherwise, still with me? All right. What is the rape kit backlog? This answer is from Mariska Hargitay. She is um, hugely involved with End the Backlog. So she says, to me, the backlog is one of the clearest and most shocking demonstrations of how we regard these crimes in our society. Testing rape kits sends a fundamental and crucial message to victims of sexual violence. You matter. What happened to you matters. Your case matters. For that reason, the Joyful Heart Foundation, which I founded in 2004, has made ending the rape kit backlog our number one advocacy priority. Every 98 seconds, someone is sexually assaulted in the United States. With the crime of sexual assault, the victim's body is a part of the crime scene. When the victim reports the assault to the police at a hospital or at a rape crisis center, the victim can choose to have a doctor or nurse photograph, swab, and conduct an invasive and exhaustive examination of the victim's entire body for DNA evidence left behind by the attacker, a process that takes four to six hours to complete. That evidence is collected and preserved in a sexual assault evidence kit, commonly referred to as a rape kit. When tested, DNA evidence contained by rape kits can be an incredibly powerful tool to solve and prevent crime. It can identify an unknown assailant and confirm the presence of a known suspect. It can affirm the survivor's account of the attack and discredit the suspect. It can connect the suspect to other crime scenes and identify serial offenders. It can exonerate the wrongfully convicted. To accomplish these things, however, rape kits must be tested. It is estimated that hundreds of thousands of rape kits sit untested in police department and crime lab storage facilities across the country in what is known as the rape kit backlog. Each kit represents a lost opportunity to bring healing and justice to a survivor of sexual violence and safety to a community. The rape kit backlog um, comprises two distinct but related problems. The first part of the backlog occurs when rape kits are collected and booked into evidence, but detectives and or prosecutors do not request DNA analysis. These kits may remain in a police evidence storage facility indefinitely. This is often referred to as untested or unsubmitted rape kit backlog. The Joyful Heart Foundation defines an untested and or 
backlogged kit as one that has not been submitted to an accredited public or private crime lab for testing within 10 days of being booked into evidence. The second part of the backlog occurs in crime laboratory facilities where rape kits that have been submitted for testing are waiting, awaiting DNA analysis. Many kits that are submitted to crime labs are not tested in a timely manner, creating the second part of the backlog. The Joyful Heart Foundation defines a backlog kit at the DNA testing lab as one that has not been tested within 30 days of the receipt of the lab. We believe that every rape kit booked into testing or booked into evidence and connected to a, a reported sexual assault should be submitted to a crime lab for testing, and that crime labs must commit to testing rape kit evidence in a timely manner. Since most jurisdictions do not have systems for counting or tracking rape kits, we cannot be sure of the total number of untested rape kits nationwide. Additionally, there is no federal law mandating the tracking and testing of rape kits. It is estimated, however, that there are hundreds of thousands of untested kits in police and crime lab storage facilities throughout the country. However, a growing number of states all across the country are making real reforms to end the backlog. States and local jurisdictions have started to count, track, and test the untested kits in their facilities, and they are seeing powerful results. I don't have any affiliation with End the Backlog. I just find it appalling that there are predators walking free, able to offend again. I'm fucking angry that our systems don't prioritize finding and apprehending these violent predators. I'm inspired by the amount of money murderinos have raised while crafting and drinking beer. I'm terrified by the fact that the statute of limitations will run out while someone's rape kit perishes on a dusty shelf. I'm embarrassed and vulnerable for the person that endured hours of swabbing and examinations to only have the evidence get placed in a box never to be seen again. I'm fucking indignant that the survivor, survivor will receive a medical bill for her rape kit. This episode could give Dan Carlin a run for his money. I could talk about the military, medical fields, my profession of real estate and construction, universities, insurance companies, etc. Maybe I'll cover these other subjects at a later date, but I do need a little break from the patriarchy. All the research makes me rage. I think this might be the longest episode yet. You're welcome, or I'm sorry. Thank you for listening to me rant about the baseline rat king that is patriarchy. This episode should serve as the foundation to start the learning process. We can then use our knowledge to change the systems, the way we behave within the systems, or abstain from certain corporations to advance our mission, which of course is burning patriarchy to the ground. Please subscribe, rate, and review. Oh, and use the word coffee in your review to be entered into a drawing for a $50 gift card for a coffee shop or restaurant of your choice. So please head over to Taboo and Murder and or Slanted Rants. If you leave a review for both, you'll be entered twice. Please reach out on Twitter at SMTaboo um, if you have questions, comments, or concerns um, and for sources. As always, thanks for listening.